Welcome back to the Bioinformatics and Beyond podcast. I'm Leo Elworth, and I'm joined again today by Dr. Lior Weinberger, the William and UT Bose Distinguished Professor of Virology at the University of California, San Francisco, where he's also a professor of pharmaceutical chemistry and biochemistry and biophysics, as well as the director of the Gladstone Center for Cell Circuitry. Today, we'll be talking about some really exciting and really cutting-edge work that Dr. Weinberger has been doing in the HIV treatment space. So thank you so much again for taking the time to be here, Dr. Weinberger. And if you don't mind, for those that haven't already seen, for instance, your TED Talk that you gave fairly recently, do you mind just giving an initial high-level overview of the new technology that you developed to try and combat HIV? Happy to. Thanks. Really, this stems from a fundamental problem that we have been working on for many years. And the fundamental problem is that viruses do two things really well. They mutate and they transmit. This is what they are. They're machines that replicate themselves as they replicate, they mutate and evolve. And as they replicate, they transmit between individuals. And the problem is that all of the antivirals, all of the vaccines, all the drugs and interventions that we have don't do either of these two things. They don't mutate or transmit. So there's this fundamental mismatch, as we call it. And what we've tried to do is understand if we can perhaps build therapies that have the ability to mutate along with the virus and transmit along with the virus to solve this fundamental mismatch. And the goal here is a, a therapy. So, so we just talked about vaccines. Have people kind of given up on HIV vaccines, just thinking back to what we just talked about? So you're not really going to have a vaccine, but now you should only be developing like therapies and treatments for active infections since maybe you can't prevent the infections? Yeah. So I... <sighs> I wouldn't say that people have given up on an HIV vaccine. I do think there is a, there, there's certainly a fraction of the field, um, I, maybe even a large fraction of researchers who think that it might be impossible given the genetic diversity of HIV. There are a lot of people who believe that a therapy is the only way to go for HIV. That's the only thing we're going to be able to accomplish. Along these lines, maybe even one last final thing before we get into your work. What about a little bit of history on then the therapeutic side of HIV, of what's been done so far? And one of the things I feel like it's talked about a lot too is, and that I personally think about a lot is like, you know, if you go and you're sick and you have a bacterial infection, you get an antibiotic. But if you have a viral, it seems like it's always kind of like, whatever, just deal with it if it's like a cold or something. And there's not like a good general antiviral drug that people get. That's a good question. I'm going to answer those in reverse. So first I'll answer the general question. So why don't we have good general antivirals and we have good antibiotics that are pretty general? And the reason is due to the fundamental difference between viruses and bacteria. Bacteria are this basic form of life that really was a precursor, a simpler form of life that gave rise to higher order multicellular organisms. Bacteria are more ancient and therefore, in some ways, they have this similarity. Viruses, on the other hand, if we think about the evolutionary tree of life, if bacteria are the roots, viruses are the tips of the leaves. 
two different families of viruses are less related to each other than the underlying organisms that they infect because viruses are parasites. And presumably, at least we believe, that the parasite had to come after the host. It couldn't evolve without the host being there in the first place. So they're even more different from each other than their underlying animal or hosts that they infect. And because of that, them being so different, it's very hard to come up with a very a general antiviral. That's one reason. There's, and there's another reason, which is viruses being parasites hijack or use the machinery of their underlying host, in this case, humans, it's much more difficult to build a therapeutic or an antiviral that can discriminate between the viral machinery and the host machinery. It's much more difficult to do that than it is to build one that discriminates between bacteria and humans. So there's two reasons. Great explanation. That that totally makes sense. Okay, so now how about the history of the HIV therapeutics to kind of lead us to where we're at today and to get to your work? Okay. The HIV was, let's say, isolated and discovered in the early to mid-1980s, both at the Pasteur Institute and in a bit of a controversy at the NIH at the same time. And only once it was discovered and isolated were antiviral drugs really, with the field able to start isolating and testing antiviral drugs. And the first antiviral that was released to the market was called AZT. AZT was an abandoned anti-cancer drug from the 1950s or 60s. It was abandoned because it was too toxic for cancer patients. It was introduced in the 19, late 1980s for HIV patients. The only thing that was available to stop this at the time plague. And what it is, it's essentially a chemotherapy. It's a poison, looks very much like a subunit of DNA, of one of the letters of DNA. And it poisons one of the viral enzymes called reverse transcriptase, tricking it into thinking that it's a piece of DNA and stopping up the, the mechanism that the virus uses to replicate. It's also, because it looks like DNA, toxic and, and can lead to some pretty bad side effects, particularly types of bone marrow and liver pathogenicities. And this class of poisons, they're, they're called nucleotide or nucleoside analogs, because they're analogs of DNA, which is a nucleotide. So these things look like DNA they lo or look like RNA, and they trick the viral enzymes into incorporating them into the viral genetic material, and that leads to the inability of the virus to continue making its genetic material. There was a whole class of AZT-like nucleoside analogs that were developed after AZT that were less toxic. The virus, they had more affinity for the viral enzymes over the, the human uh, replication enzymes, so they were less toxic. And that was the first major class of uh, inhibitors. They're called reverse transcriptase inhibitors, and they were based on these nucleoside analogs that were poisons. All antivirals we have for HIV are really a, a poison for some sort of poison for the enzymes of the virus. They attack the viral enzymes. 
And really the next class in the mid-1990s that came up were the so-called protease inhibitors. These were not nucleoside analogs. They were small molecules which got into a different enzyme of the virus called protease, stopped up the gears in that enzyme. Now, the problem with AZT and the nucleoside analogs was they worked, but very quickly the virus seemed to evolve resistance and you had so-called escape of the virus from these drugs. For AZT, it took a few weeks, so it was very, very quick. The drug did not work that well. It, was, it worked quite slowly, and the virus was able to escape or build, or it was able to select for mutants that were not susceptible to the drug in just a few weeks. Protease inhibitors worked quickly, and it took many more mutations for the virus to evolve resistance. And what the field very quickly found in the mid-1990s was when you combined these reverse transcriptase inhibitors with the protease inhibitors in a combination therapy, it took all of the mutations that were required for resistance to AZT and all of the mutations that were required for the protease inhibitors for the virus to escape. So you've just, you combinatorially increased the number of mutations the virus needed to escape. And that seemed to work for quite a long time. And if you combined three drugs, even better. And those became, in the late 1990s, that's what really turned the tide for HIV patients. These combination antiretroviral therapies where three different drugs were given in a cocktail. They were referred to as highly active antiretroviral therapy or HART, H-A-A-R-T. That term then evolved into CART, combination antiretroviral therapy. And those cocktails are really what turn the tide for HIV patients. In some cases, the patients had to take dozens of pills multiple times a day, but the pharmaceutical industry f- figured out ways to make those combination antiretroviral drugs into single pills. And today, many patients can take a single pill once or twice a day, and that's sufficient. And all of the drugs are contained within a single pill. So this is really what, what this is the, the incredible success story of HIV medicines, which were a real modern miracle of medicine. Well, thank you again for another just beautiful explanation to walk through that. That was crystal clear. I got nothing to add. So I think let's go ahead and move forward to today then and talk about your therapy. Yours, I think, is it fair to say, operates in a pretty much fundamentally new, different way. And can you describe how this therapy works you've been developing? Yeah, let me, let me first lay the groundwork. I said that these HIV medicines, these drugs, were a modern miracle, and they are, for those people who can get them and stay on them. Even a pill a day for many people in sub-Saharan Africa and other resource-limited settings can be too difficult to keep up. So this is the reason that many people want a vaccine, and it's the reason that led us to try and create a different type of therapy that can overcome this barrier. And what we have been working on is something that, again, like, harkens back 80 years. And in the 1940s, there was a Scandinavian virologist who noticed that when he grew viruses, turns out influenza virus, but most viruses, when he grew them in petri dishes, very quickly there were these versions of the virus called defective particles that were produced. 
for all of the RNA viruses that he and his colleagues tested, this happened. Really quickly, these defective interfering particles within one round of replication, they were formed. And these eventually became called defective interfering particles or defective particles. And there was a big push in the 1970s to try and turn these into therapies. And that kind of fell flat. No one was able to get it to work. And quite by accident, we started working on the same thing without knowing that we were working on this, you know, 50-year-old problem (laughs) and wondering if we could create these defective versions of viruses and turn them into molecular parasites of the virus itself. So just like a virus is a parasite of the host, of its underlying host, we wondered if we could create parasites of the virus, which would steal from the virus, steal the resources the virus uses to create itself. And instead of making virus particles, you'd make these defective particles, and we called them therapeutic interfering particles. And this was the theory that we based our research on for the past 15 or 20 years. Can we create these molecular parasites which function not by poisoning the virus, but by stealing from it and piggybacking on it? And therefore, they replicate along with the virus. If they replicate, they evolve, they make mistakes, and they co-evolve along with the virus, entering something which the field calls a co-evolutionary arms race. They're continually trying to keep up with the virus. The virus is continually trying to keep up with them in terms of evolving. And if they replicate and mobilize or transmit from cells, they can also potentially do the same thing that the virus does. And transmit between individuals. And so this sort of admittedly radical idea was to create therapies that overcame this fundamental mismatch, had the ability to evolve and the ability to transmit. Yeah, and this is this is really cool and It took me, I would say, I don't know, maybe I was a little slow here, but I think it took me a little while to kind of wrap my brain fully around exactly what's happening here. So maybe I'll just kind of go over this one more time in case anyone else uh, runs into that. So the treatment is basically an HIV virus that has gotten all of the essential pieces taken out to actually replicate itself. Is Is that right? That's right. These can't replicate on their own. They don't have the ability. Okay. But what they do have the ability to do is to basically steal the outer casing that's being produced by like a live HIV virus and an active infection. Is that is that about right? That's right. Yeah. So you so you went in, you took the HIV virus, and then you just kind of surgically removed the the pieces of the genome that cause it to be virulent and and a problem in people. That's right. How did you go about the, that process? Many years of trial and error. (laughs) In the lab, we started, I would say this was a decade, at least a a decade and a half of work. First, we started just guessing. At the time when we started building these, we thought we knew pretty much all we needed to know about HIV. It had been the best studied piece of genetic material ever, (laughs) even 15 years ago. And we thought we could just cut out the parts of HIV that we knew were important for the virus to make itself and just leave the parts that were important for a piece of genetic material to steal, to parasitize. That didn't work. We, <laughs> we in fact, once built 
about a hundred, uh, hundred fifty thousand versions uh, of these dissected or denuded viral genomes, and tested every one of them, and none of them worked the way that we wanted them to work. So we tried many, many different approaches, and it turned out that, like many good stories in biology, this was an accident. The way what we finally found that worked was an accident. There are so many examples of this in not only modern biology, but even the discovery of antibiotics. This is a little bit like that. We had a culture, a petri dish, or a version of a petri dish running in the back of the lab that I had forgotten about. I didn't even care about it anymore because <laughs> this had been such a long and, and haunted project, really. And it turned out that this culture in the back of the lab had spit out a working parasite, a working hijacker, and we called it, or therapeutic interfering particle, all by itself. And it's really a testament to the power of evolution, of natural selection, that this evolved on its own inside a Petri dish. Wow. Wow. Okay. That's pretty, yeah, that is pretty incredible. Okay. So what a person would get then for this therapy is they're getting, again, because for me, it, it really is so different. It's just amazing and hard for me to just totally grok it. I, the person would be getting as a therapy, HIV in its outer shell is the HIV shell. And then inside is the genetic material of the HIV minus the certain components. And then when that gets into the individual, then what happens? That is able to infiltrate into the cell because it has the basically the casing. And then what kind of like what happens once it gets in there from that point? I'll take a step back because the way we're actually delivering it to the upcoming patients is the same way that some of the modern anti-cancer therapies, the immunotherapies are being delivered, uh, the so-called cellular immunotherapies or CAR T cells. This is a cancer therapy, which is a probably the newest type of cancer therapy is they're actually based on HIV as well. And what is done is the patient's immune cells are removed. They are infected with a HIV-like virus that can't, can't replicate. It's just a delivery mechanism. And that virus carries with it a receptor that targets cancer cells. And then those cells are grown up and put back into the patient. And that's called cellular immunotherapy or CAR T-cell adoptive transfer. And we're using the same approach uh, as are many other groups for, for HIV. And the idea is you take the patient's cells from the patient, you isolate them, you infect them with this HIV-like virus that's not a virus anymore, it's just a delivery vehicle, grow those cells and put them back into the patient just like in other clinical trials or in the cancer immunotherapy case. If that patient is infected by HIV, HIV will infect those cells. And then this hijacker will be able to do its job. In that cell which gets infected by HIV, these dissected or, or denuded viral HIVs will be able to steal the outer materials that the virus is making inside of that cell. And instead of that cell producing more HIV particles and then dying, that cell will produce these therapeutic particles, not be killed, and as quickly at least. And those particles can then 
therapeutically target new cells and keep them from becoming HIV factories as well. So it's a therapeutic approach to reduce the overall burden of HIV in a patient. As far as how people would get the therapy, is it just me or is that a little bit of overkill to take all the cells out and put it back in versus like an injection or some other means? Is there a reason why you're doing it that way? Yeah, that's a good question. Eventually, as the whole field wants to move towards doing gene therapies the way that you're talking about of just giving an injection. But right now there's a precedent and there is an existing delivery precedent for delivering these types of therapies using this cancer immunotherapy approach. So it's done this way partially for FDA, partially for Medicine can be conservative, and if there's precedent, that's usually the the easiest way to go. Is this currently considered a gene therapy? Because when you describe the low-level mechanics of it, of a virus coming in, replicating, and then basically stealing the machinery from the live virus, that, that doesn't necessarily sound like a gene therapy. Is this a gene therapy? It's delivered the same way that gene therapies are delivered. Its mechanism of action is not a classical gene therapy, no. It's somewhere in between. since we're running out of time here, just at a final low level here. So you're going to take the cells out because maybe there's a precedent for it and this has been shown to work for other things. Then that's how you'll introduce the virus into the cells. And then the virus will enter the cell and it'll only replicate those pieces that essentially their only job or what they're able to do is just replicate themselves and steal the components from the live viruses. Is that about right? Do you want to add anything else to how this works? No, that's right, except that the really important caveat is this thing, this hijacker, can't do anything on its own. It's only activated by HIV. It can only become active in the presence of HIV. It can't replicate any part of itself without HIV. Okay, and the final piece before we wrap up is what about like safety issues and maybe public, let's say, hesitancy? Because I know when I first learned about it, I was thinking like, Okay, hmm, that's would there be any possible risks here, especially because also this can transmit from person to person, right? After you've gotten it. So this is a something we've thought a lot about, and it's gonna be the that's the major reason for clinical trials is safety. And that's why we're doing the clinical trials and why we're doing testing in animals as well. There is a precedent, and the precedent is actually from vaccinology. There's one type of vaccine that I didn't talk about at all in the previous episode, and that's something called a live attenuated vaccine. I actually did talk about it when I talked about cowpox, but <laughs> live attenuated vaccines are live virus. They're weakened live virus. That's what, that's what attenuated stands for. And these live attenuated vaccines, which we have for the polio vaccine, it's the polio vaccine that was chosen for the worldwide eradication effort, the so-called oral polio vaccine, yellow fever vaccine, smallpox vaccine, the vaccine that we give children, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, all of three of those are live virus vaccines or live attenuated. These live attenuated vaccines we know replicate. That's how they work. They're weakened viruses. They train the immune system by replicating themselves, but they don't cause sickness. The other thing we know about many of these live attenuated vaccines is that they can transmit between individuals. 
Polio vaccine is the most well-known example of this. You can give a oral polio vaccine to one child in a classroom. Children being children don't wash their hands, and the vaccine can transmit from one child to two or three or even four other children. And you can what's called passively vaccinate those children just by vaccinating that first single child. So it's a recognized benefit that these live attenuated vaccines do this. That's a, that's a great point. And your therapy has a, a kind of a similar property. But circumscribed, because it can't transmit indiscriminately. It can only transmit within, we believe, the HIV-infected population. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point about the precedent. And any efficacy data in people at this point? Not in people. In animals, but not in people. And how's it looking for animals? Promising. Okay, sounds good. And the last point um, actually is really, really exciting, I think. You mentioned to me before that the government actually has asked you to check into this type of therapy for COVID. That's right. We have been building a version of this for COVID, and it looks like preliminarily it can be done. And it has many of the same properties as the approach for other viruses. So we're excited about it. And it might provide another tool in the arsenal for treating COVID and SARS-CoV-2, and especially for treating the variants, which we now see arising around the world. Well, thank you so much for all of this, taking the time and explaining all this. I know I already learned a ton just from this, and I have a feeling everyone that listens is going to learn a lot as well. And on behalf of all of us, thanks for all the education and thanks for the great work that you're doing. Really, it's amazing work. This has been great. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I hope you found it interesting. If you did, if you learned something new and you enjoyed the show, I'd love to hear about it on Twitter. You can join the conversation and keep up with the newest episodes and past guests by following at BioInfoPod. Feel free to tweet at the show or send a DM about anything you liked, didn't like, who or what you'd like to see next, questions for future guests, or just chat about all things bioinformatics and, of course, beyond. It really does make my day to see people share on Twitter when they found the podcast useful. So definitely keep it coming. And again, that's at BioInfoPod. Finally, you can always help out by subscribing to the show, giving it a rating, or just recommending it to a friend who's interested in these topics. Thanks again, and see you next time.